Probably all of us have seen political cartoons. And like the politicians got either the big ears, the big chin, the big, you know, whatever it is, and we kind of laugh, right? It's, it's a caricature. Or maybe we've gone to the fair or something like that, and, and there's chalk drawings, or on the sidewalk at a farmer's market, and there's, you know, a chalk drawing. And it's made with maybe a small body, a big head. Well, you know, that's a caricature. But when it can become destructive, this is where my heart breaks, is when people reject a caricature of Christ. And so there's a rejection of what I would probably reject too. Well, he grew up in California when he was an infant. He was adopted by a Christian family, so he found himself going to church just about every Sunday, and, and church inspired him, faith intrigued him, and he began more and more to, to kind of lean into faith, but he also had, as he got older, a lot of questions, a lot of wrestling, a lot of really wonderment about faith and what it really means, and especially when he was 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, he began to ask a lot of questions, and a couple of his Sunday school teachers said, whoa, wait a minute, that's a... Those are tough questions. You've got to have faith. And then he met with his pastor, and, and his pastor said, you know, you, you really you need to have faith and believe. And after a couple of years, he just drifted away from church, and he never came back. And he lived the rest of his life with some sentiment toward Christian faith, but also some hostility toward church and Christian faith. And he grew up and became somewhat successful. His name is Steve Jobs. He founded Apple. Now just imagine with me if Steve Jobs had maybe in the mystery of faith had those questions answered or at least someone come alongside and say, you know, I struggle with the same questions too. Let's, let's walk alongside each other and discern and wrestle and learn and grow and Imagine if he would have been a person of faith with his influence and his affluence. Imagine the difference he could have made in the kingdom of God. But instead, he lived with a measure of brokenness and hostility to faith. It breaks my heart, but we live in a culture where there's a growing number of Christians who are citing themselves as ex-evangelicals, like ex-evangelicals or former Christians. <clears throat> They're deconstructing their faith. They're saying, you know, I'd, a lot of the stuff that I see, if that's a Christian faith, I don't want it. Well, <clears throat> this has really happened in every generation. Every generation has wrestled with different issues of their time, of their culture. But it seems like it's accelerating more now for several reasons <clears throat> of why some people are choosing to leave the faith. <clears throat> Part of it is just distrust in institutions. You know, I, in the last you know, generation, views of, of government and schools and media and churches, all institutions, are kind of at an all-time low for many people. And so it can be trust, it can be challenging to trust what you might view as an institution. <clears throat> Sometimes people are deconstructing or walking away from Christ because they feel the Christian faith is anti-intellectual. It's not safe to ask questions. 
or there's kind of a denial of the validity of science, or there's conspiracy theories. And we say, if that's what Christians are about, why would I want to be part of their tribe? For others, it might be politically aligned churches. You know, this is how Christians vote. And, well, if you don't vote this way, you're probably not like a, a Christian, right? But if we vote different ways because there's different issues that we wrestle with to try to think, how would God want, what, what would God call us to be pursuing and really accentuating out of all the different issues? And I guess if I don't vote that way, it means I'm, I'm out. I'm not part of this tribe. <clears throat> For others, it's because of racism. <clears throat> because the church has been silent about racism for too long because many people in especially more conservative churches have actually denied that there's a history of racism in our culture, a culture that had genocide against the people who originally lived here. You know, we say to the Nazis, how could you try to wipe people out of the Ukraine? Did you know that Hitler modeled some of that after what we did to First Nations people? Or maybe it's slavery where there were human beings who a baby could be ripped from his mother's arms and it was legal and sold to someone else. Or maybe some people have had a, a toxic example of the Christian faith. They were abused by someone who said they were a Christian. Or maybe they're scandals where sometimes in our culture, charisma is more important than character. And they're scandals. And, and we say, well, if that's, if that's the church... Or we see hypocrisy, where we see one thing Sunday morning and then we see people other places. Like, wait a minute. Maybe sometimes it's because of views of women and misogyny, where we read about abuse that was actually covered up, or it feels like a male club, or there's no space for women for any kind of leadership. For some, it's because there's been a health and wealth gospel. And that's what we've been fueled by. And then a tragedy happens, and we say, wait a minute, where's God? This isn't. This isn't what I was told. I was told that I would have a happier marriage and I'd be more successful at work and, and that God would bless me. That's not happening. Or a child dies. And we say, wait a minute. According to this theology, that means I didn't have enough faith. And my child died. I'm done with this tribe. But the truth is, all of us, especially emerging generations, are really wrestling with differentiating Here's my parents' faith if we grew up in a Christian home. And, and is that, am I going to translate that and own that in my real everyday life? Is it going to be legit for me? And then we also struggle with this because we live in a culture with more diverse worldviews than ever before, more accessible to us. And we struggle, what information do we even trust in our culture today? With so much disinformation, like, man, what, what do we even trust? And so we've come to the fourth and the kind of concluding week of our Built uh, to Last sermon series. We're, we've been spending uh, four Sundays exploring how we can build a faith that will guide us today and will be built to last for a lifetime and into eternity. And today, let's explore this topic of deconstruction. Now, first of all, deconstruction, stripping things down can be really positive. We, we all deconstruct different times, and we need to do that. An example is we all grew up in a family of origin, and we need to do a certain amount of evaluation and some deconstruction. There will be some things where we say, wow, what a blessing. I want to embody that and pass that on to the next generation. And there's other things like, oh, you know, that was good, but that was really performance-based, or there was some shame with it. So I'm going to deconstruct, and I'm going to change that 
for my relationships, for me, and for next generation. And then sometimes we just say, I have to break this, this generational. So I have to burn that to the ground and deconstruct it completely. All of us have to do that. We have to do that culturally. When we process information, issues, whatever the dominant paradigms of our culture, we're all looking at that, I, I pray, through a biblical lens. And we're saying, Is this, does this jive? I, there's some things I, I need to embrace and others I need to deconstruct. Same thing, education, what we hear. It's same thing when we go uh, social media, the web, when we say, I, I need to discern what's truth in this and what's the chaff that's really not wise. But when it can become destructive, this is where my heart breaks, is when people reject a caricature of Christ. <clears throat> Probably all of us have seen political cartoons. And like the politicians got either the big ears, the big chin, the big, you know, whatever it is, and we kind of laugh, right? It's, it's a caricature. Or maybe we've gone to the fair or something like that, and, and there's chalk drawings, or on the sidewalk at a farmer's market, and there's, you know, a chalk drawing. And it's made with maybe a small body, a big head. Well, you know, that's a caricature. There's a lot of people in our culture, not, not everyone, but many people who are rejecting faith, it, it, rejecting the church, they're really rejecting a caricature of Christ because there's scaffolding around it, often toxic or that's cultural, but it's not really biblical. And so there's a rejection of what I would probably reject too. Years ago, George Buttrick was the um, chaplain at Yale University, and he, he would have students come into his office, and they would describe, you know, you know, faith, you know, whatever their faith was, you know, especially Christian faith. This is why I'm rejecting it. And he would say, I would reject that too. Now, can we talk about what, who Jesus really is? Can we wrestle with that together? So let's just take a look a little bit at what Scripture has to say. Because what we need to do is really sift through the baggage and deconstruct the baggage. We need to strip away the scaffolding and get down to what really is the gospel and who really is Jesus. And what's Jesus' core mission really about? In other words, I, I, I'm pleading with us not to throw baby Jesus out with the bathwater. But we do need to empty the dirty tub and get down to who Jesus really is. First of all, Jesus did a lot of deconstructing. Here's just one example in Matthew chapter 5. And, and Jesus does this about six times from verses 21 to 48. So Jesus went up on, on a mountainside and sat down. Isn't it fascinating? He, he's on this mountainside. This is the Sermon on the Mount where he's really uh, unfolding his core teaching and he sits down with the people. Isn't that beautiful? God came in the flesh and he sits down with the people. And, and then his disciples came to him. Jesus began to teach. Now you've heard it said, but I say to you, and over and over and over he says, now you've heard it said, but he helps deconstruct and helps them understand what it really means. And here's why. Because there was this group of theologians called the Pharisees. They began beautifully during the Maccabean revolt. They were like the heroes who had helped bring people back to faith. But then over the generations, they had actually uh, developed 613 laws that helped define Scripture. Everything from like, okay, on like corn, do you, do you tithe per, per, or per kernel? Um, do, do we actually tithe each mint? How far can you walk on, on, on the Sabbath? Just all kinds of things. And people 
are having a hard time discerning now who really is God and what's really what, what, what God taught in Scripture and what are all these rules and regulations we're being shackled by. And a lot of people were just bewildered and they're walking away from faith. They're deconstructing. They're saying, this is what it is. I'm out. And Jesus comes along and he confronts this. Now, Jesus isn't changing the Old Testament. He's not saying, you've heard it said, but that's wrong. He's saying, you've heard this said, but it's been misunderstood, the heart of what it really means. And let's deconstruct a lot of the cultural baggage, and let's get down to what God was really saying in Scripture. And so he's calling people back to truth, to strip it down to truth. Well, Jesus takes a next step with the Pharisees, and in Mark chapter 7, he says, you have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to human Traditions. Now, now, let's remember, traditions can be beautiful, can't they? Traditions or liturgy or songs or holidays or you know, cultural events, family, um, heritage. Uh, those can be beautiful things, and we value them. But the challenge is, do they really point to something, and what do they point to? And when we begin to lose what they point to, then the tradition begins to become the external marker of whether people are spiritual or not, right? And then we don't even really know what it is. Let me give you an example of this. Now, you often see me carrying my Yeti around, right? To keep me liquefied, okay? Hmm, that's good. Yeah. Now, imagine if I walked around and I said, oh, yeah, mm. oh, that's good. Mm. Oh, we got to get the bottom. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's good, right? What would you do right now? You'd laugh uncomfortably. You'd say, Greg, that, that's really weird. See, what you'd say is, first of all, poor Carolyn, she has to live with this guy. But the other thing you'd say is, Greg, you've got to drink what's in it. Mm. Now, traditions are like what holds truths or things we value. Whether it's a holiday or liturgy or whatever it is, like that, it's what holds the truths that we cherish. And here's what happens. We start looking at the traditions or the way things are culturally wrapped and we begin to lick that. And after a while we say, you know, that, that doesn't really change my life. And God is saying, you've got to deconstruct and get into what real truth is and who Jesus really is and not some of the toxic cultural things or good efforts, but that may cause confusion about who Jesus really is. See, anytime traditions add to the gospel, we're shackling people. Anytime a tradition defines who's spiritual, you know, like who sings what kind of songs, or a certain kind of clothing, or rather people never drink any alcohol, or whatever it is, and we say that's the spiritual marker right there. Rather than some of those things, some of the principles flow out of biblical truth, but we're looking the outside and we're missing what's within. Or it might determine who's in. Oh, here's the people in. It's these traditions. And then people reject those traditions or the cultural wrapping, and they think that they're actually rejecting God when they're just rejecting what's toxic. Well, Jesus really helped to deconstruct the apostles' view of who he is, uh, it's, it's in Mark chapter 8, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and after three days rise again. 
And Peter took him aside and rebuked him. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's deconstructing their view of the Messiah. Their view is, oh, the Messiah is going to be a conquering warrior. He's going to come and he's going to throw the shackles of Rome. He's going to destroy the empire. He's going to raise us up and we're going to be on his left and right side in glory. And now Jesus starts explaining to them, I need to redefine what Messiah is and what your faith is going to be. In other words, they had a kind of, they, they were looking for like conquer culture. And Jesus says it's about a servant culture. It's very different. We need to be careful about a conquer culture. You know how it is. If we can just get the culture to act the way, the way think, you know, Christianity should. And we push the culture and we try to pass laws or we do whatever it is. And, and, and that's not always bad, but often how we do that. What happens even if that's somewhat successful and there's a little bit of behavior modification? But then the gospel's damaged in doing it because people say, whoa, if that's Jesus, if that's the church, I, I don't want anything to do with that. The church is oppressive in our culture. That's how some people view it. Rather than the gospel is about love and servanthood and sacrifice and compassion and truth and justice. Imagine if, if the church in our culture, which is already doing a lot of this, but even more so, were viewed by people as, boy, those are loving people. Look how they love each other. Look at the sacrifices they make asking nothing in return for their neighbors. We see that in everything from the food pantry to ESL classes to the homeless shelter to so many people just serving their neighbors and loving their neighbors. And how we need to continue to, to be a tribe, to be a community who's known by our love and our grace and our convictions. Well, a few examples for us of people in Scripture who were doing some deconstructing or who were wrestling with faith and doubt. Because uh, let me say, if you're about to fall asleep, please don't, but if you are, Here's really the core of this message. If you're struggling with doubts, faith and doubt are not opposed to each other. I think it's often in doubts that our faith grows the most because we lean in, we wrestle, and God takes us layers deeper. Doubters welcome. We want the church to be the safest place on earth to wrestle with questions, to ask questions for the messiness of God's grace as we walk alongside each other. So here's just a few examples of just uh, people who, who wrestled with God. And here's kind of a funky example here, Genesis 32. A man wrestled with Jacob all night. And then the man said, your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel, because you have wrestled with God. Now here, here's this kind of funky uh, uh, physical experience that God takes Jacob through to teach him. So Jacob wrestles all through the night, and afterwards, it's identified somehow this is God. We, we don't understand whether that's like an angel or God somehow manifests him as a man, but, but, but he wrestles all night, and, and then he changes Jacob's name to Israel. Do you know what Israel means? It means wrestle with God. Literally, Israel means wrestle with God. And what God is saying is, my people are going to need to wrestle to own their faith, and to day by day discern what it means to follow Christ, to be recalibrated. Here's our new identity in Christ as God's beloved, forgiven, called 
people of purpose. And so sometimes we're going to need to be wrestling. And that's why I want the church to be the safest place on earth. Sometimes God has to go to extremes to deconstruct. 2 Kings 17, we read, The people of Israel were taken into exile because they had sinned against the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt. They worshipped idols and followed the detestable sins of the nations around them. God actually took his people into exile two different times because they worshipped idols and it brought injustice. The Hebrew, God's covenant people actually went all the way to human sacrifice, ch- child sacrifices and temple prostitutes, which is basically enforced prostitution under the guise uh, of worship. That's how, that's how much the cultures around them influenced them. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And he finally said, you know what? The only way we're going to be able to do this, we're going to burn it to the ground. I'm literally going to burn Jerusalem to the ground. And I'm going to send you in exile. But I'm not rejecting you. I'm going to send you in exile. And I'm going to minister to you there. And you're going to learn and be humbled and discover more of who I am, my love, my grace, my care for you. And then I'm going to bring you back home and plant you in your land again. Sometimes God has to burn things to the ground in order for us to really strip away some of the stuff and see what the gospel really is. Here's a guy who wrestled with unbelief in uh, Mark chapter 9. The boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, oh, but help me overcome my belief. This is a guy who brings his, his beloved child to Jesus, and he says, well, you know, maybe if you could do this. And then he says, oh, but I doubt, help my unbelief. And how does Jesus respond? Does Jesus look at him and say, how can you doubt? What's the matter with you? All these mortals, how come you doubt me? That's not what Jesus does. Do you know what he does? He heals his son. And he blesses him. Because this is someone who's open and honest. He's saying, God, help my unbelief. I'm struggling with this. I don't know how many years ago. Actually, it was when Lisa, who was our church administrator, was dying of cancer. For the first time, I began to pray for people. God, would you grant faith for us to trust in you? That's a beautiful prayer. God, help my unbelief. Will you help give me trust? The mystery of faith. Will you help give me faith to trust in you, oh God? And God will never reject us. Instead, he healed this guy's son. One more example, and then we'll... We'll wrap it up with how we can care for each other through our faith, our doubts, and deconstruction. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus with these two uh, uh, Christ followers. And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about himself. Now, here's what's amazing. On the first Easter, resurrection day, the first Easter, Jesus makes four appearances. He probably spends half of his waking hours, true, he, he spends the most amount of time on the first Easter where? With these two of his followers who are wandering around. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're going back home. And they're saying, we, we give up. We thought he was, he was the Messiah, but they killed him. And Jesus spends the most amount of time on the first Easter, on the day that he rose, walking alongside them. And he just says, hey, guys, what, what, what's going on? What's, what's troubling you? Isn't that beautiful? He listens. And they say, well, I mean, haven't you heard what's going on? And you see, they don't know it's Jesus. And he's like, "Mm, no, what's going on? He said, well, there's this Jesus, and we thought he was the Messiah. We followed him, and then they killed him. And now we don't know what's happening, and we're confused, and they're leaving. And what does Jesus do? 
He helps deconstruct that help them to understand, well, the Messiah wasn't what you were expecting. The Messiah would come with love and grace and truth and sacrifice so that our sins would go to the cross and we could be his beloved children of grace. Amen? That's the beauty. And so I pray that we will not be like Job's friends. You know, Job's suffering and his friends come from miles away, beautiful. Three of them and there's a fourth lingering. And first they sit with him for a couple days. We're like, yes. Then they open their mouths. And all three of them basically give these long diatribes of three different worldviews of why he's suffering. And you can just see the pain is getting worse for him. Let's not be like Job's friends. Let's be like Jesus and just walk alongside people. Are you okay? What's happening? Really? You know, I, I struggle with some of those things too. And well, you know, I think I think God has some things to say, but let's see if this is the right time to talk about that or not. That's how we walk alongside each other with safety so we can flourish and become all that God has created us to be. Who might we be called to walk alongside? Who's struggling with faith and doubt, whose life is giving a crushing blow. All right, wrapping it up, how, how do we walk alongside each other? Well, first thing, the end of the little book of Jude in verses 21 and 22 says, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. In other words, keep loving even though we're waiting. Sometimes when we're waiting and God isn't delivering what we're hoping for, it's hard to love each other, isn't it? And then here, oh, be merciful to those who doubt. Wow. Just come alongside each other and be merciful. Imagine if someone would have come alongside and been merciful and listened and had common ground, and maybe begun to, to, to have some possible answers or at least some perspective for Steve Jobs. Imagine what he might have done. Imagine if he would have stewarded his influence and affluence for the kingdom, huh? But we need to rely on biblical truth. We need to get down to it to strip the scaffolding away. In Acts chapter 17, the, the Bereans, a tiny town. Paul has been chased out of Thessalonica. He comes to Berea. He's beaten up. He's wounded. He's hurting. He's probably ready to just give up and go back home. But he goes to Berea, and this is what happens. The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they eagerly received the message and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now let's remember, Paul wasn't famous then, right? I mean, we're like, of course they listen to Paul. They have no idea who this guy is. He hasn't written scripture yet. He's not, I mean, here's this traveling missionary, and they're like, you know, that, that kind of makes sense. I don't know. what. But is this just another tradition? Is this like, hmm, come back tomorrow. We're going to check scripture. And he keeps day after day, and they keep going back to God's truth, to God's word, to scripture, to strip away the scaffolding, to strip, to, to strip away stuff to get down to who Jesus really is. Because if it was true, it would be a tectonic shift for their worldview. And so the truth test is that for them is looking through the lens of Scripture. Now catch this. If we don't know Scripture, I don't mean a PhD in it in Hebrew, Greek, whatever, but I mean if we're not at least engaged with Scripture some ourselves, even as five minutes a day, you know, we're just... We're accumulating scripture within us. We won't know the difference between the gospel and tradition. We'll have no idea. 
We'll just say, hmm, that seems like it's probably, but we won't know unless we look through the lens of biblical truth and we're in community with others who we trust, not blindly, but we have greater trust that they're handling Scripture well. Or we're going to possibly deconstruct and reject what's not even who Jesus is and not even what the gospel is about, which, which just, that probably breaks my heart more than anything else in our culture. If God beamed down and said, Greg, you can have one thing. I think it'd be that everyone could really see who Jesus is and make a decision and not reject caricatures. All right, now I promise we're wrapping it up. Thanks for laughing. John chapter 6. Many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Do you want to leave me too? Jesus asked. Oh, and then Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, Jesus is beginning to have some more challenging teaching. And a lot of people are saying, well, that's, I mean, the meals for thousands of people and the, um, and the miracles and the healings, that was great. But, but discipleship, like, uh, uh, like, we might have to follow you. We might have to, like, have a commitment. We might have to serve. And, so, and they start leaving. And so Jesus says, hey, how about you? Are you going to leave me too? And I love Simon Peter. He's so honest. And he says, where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. You're, you're truth. And you know, a lot of people in our culture... Jesus asked the same thing, actually, to all of us. You too? He's saying, who else? Where else? Where are we going to go? Wealth, status, career, a person, pleasure. Now, some of those are beautiful gifts from God, but as soon as we find our meaning, our identity, our purpose in that, it owns us, and we're vulnerable to those things coming and going. I'm really wrapping up now. Our daughter Anne and I, Anne lives in, in Philadelphia, she teaches at Eastern University and does research at CHOP Children's Hospital. We were in, in Seattle visiting relatives this summer and we're driving from, from Seattle to Olympia, which is the state capital. But I know that you knew that because in third grade you memorize your capitals, right? So we're going, uh, you know, about an hour's drive and, and she's downloaded music and she's listening and it's Maverick City, okay? And Maverick City is like a worship group. Matter of fact, next month, Anne and I are gonna go to Maverick City a worship event in Philadelphia. And this was recorded in a prison. And the background choir are all incarcerated people. And it's beautiful. And I began to become really emotional. You know how it is, Dad. You okay, Dad? Dad's getting kind of old here. What's going on? You know, and I'm just like really emotional. I said, Ann, who else can reach? Who else can share people who are in prison? I mean, all due respect, but Buddha didn't sacrifice. Allah didn't sacrifice. Your career, the money we make, those things aren't going to sacrifice for you. They're going to demand sacrifices from us. But Jesus, God became human. Jesus, was, Jesus chose to, remember, God could have scripted it any way, and Jesus chose to grow up on the edge of poverty he was an immigrant. He was a refugee who fled into Egypt. Jesus spent a lot of time with marginalized people and the religious institutions said, why spend time with those people? Jesus was profiled by the empire. He was executed by the state. 
but he rose in beautiful glory. I pray, let's, let's deconstruct, let's, let's help to, to recalibrate what the church can be, and let's recalibrate our understanding of the gospel. But, but in throwing the scaffolding out, let's not flush out the baby Jesus with the bathwater. Because who else? He's the one who became one of us, rescued us. He's the one by His grace who calls us His kids. And He's the one to call us to be His hands and feet and voice in a broken world. Amen? That's the Jesus we love. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what we do here at FBC, please visit our website, fbcamers.org. Also, consider subscribing to this podcast so you can get a notification when our weekly sermons are posted. Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a great day.